Well, good morning. This morning, uh, between services, I had um, the pleasure of meeting with uh, a group of people that want to be baptized next week, and uh, there's going to be a lot of people getting wet. And, um, you know, it just reminded me, if you missed that class between services, and you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, rose again from the dead, and in response to that grace that enables you to be with God together forever, you want to rededicate or dedicate or step forward in a public fashion, open yourself to maybe a, a re-anointing or a new anointing of the Holy Spirit in living as best you can in exuberant obedience to God. If that's you and you've not yet been baptized, please consider being baptized next week. It's not too late. If you missed the class this morning, see me, see Dave Beatty, see George Kirsten after the service. Let them know and we will set you up. There is room in the pool for you. Amen? Uh, this week, as um, the folks set up behind me, we're um, uh, doing the series of Esther <clears throat> on the book of Esther. And you'll remember last week, I um, suggested to you that one of the foundational pushes or themes or messages in the book of Esther, one of the reasons why the author of Esther is writing the story, why God impressed on him or her, inspired the author to tell us the story is to show us in an amazing way, in many ways, like but also unlike other places in the Bible, but to show us, especially in the book of Esther, how God often works through, works in unlikely places, through unlikely people, in unlikely ways, through seemingly insignificant events. That's a mouthful. But regardless of the mouthful, God works is what Esther loudly proclaims. And then last week we looked a little bit at the unlikely place for God to be working with disobedient people who because of their disobedience are in exile in Persia of all places. And even within the king's own bedchambers in the king's palace, the seat of world power of all places. And even a bit how God works in seemingly insignificant events, at least the book of Esther and what happened there in Persia, grossly insignificant on a world history secular scale. I doubt anyone but the Jews even noticed much. Today, I want to continue looking at God working, and I want to look particularly at the unlikely people that God delights to work through. And the people that I want to take a look at may not be the ones that you'd first think as being unlikely. But first, I hear quiet behind me, so I think that means they're ready. The West Bowls drama team is back. Give them a hand. And um, Last week, if you were here, I gave you all of the assignment to read through the book of Esther last week. I'm just curious, how many of you were able to find the time, by God's grace, to read through the book of Esther? Okay, like four of you. No, there's more than that. Listen, if you haven't had the chance, would you try again this week to take the chance? God will bless you. I think immeasurably more even in your experience here in this amazing story, if you get it kind of all in there, even before we go along. But if you didn't get the chance, or even if you did... The West Bowls drama team is here this morning, um, but back from their lifelong probation for, um, pro they're on probation for what I call QDC, questionable dramatic content, 
But back from their lifelong probation, here's the West Bulls drama team. And my goodness, they are actually going to put on for us the entire story of the book of Esther. Would you welcome them once again? Okay, here is the story of Esther in as long as it takes for me to do this. This is King Xerxes. You might know him from a little film called 300. But he was photoshopped in 300 because no one is that buff in real life. Anyway, he's the king of Persia. That over there, that's his queen, Vashti. Vashti has an attitude problem, so Xerxes banishes her. Xerxes is feeling like the man until he realizes he no longer has a queen. But instead of admitting he was wrong, his advisors suggest holding a beauty pageant to pick a new and improved queen. Xerxes is all over this idea, so the most beautiful girls in the kingdom are summoned to the palace. Now this is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man that raised his cousin Esther after her folks died, and that is Esther. Say hello, Esther. All right. Now being a beautiful girl... Esther is entered into the competition. And lo and behold, Esther wows the king with a stunning combination of good looks and engaging personality and outstanding personal hygiene. And so Esther becomes the new queen. Way to go, Esther. And on her way out of the wedding reception, her cousin Mordecai catches her and warns her not to tell the king that she's Jewish. She must keep that a secret. And starting off your marriage with secrets is always a good thing, right? Okay, well, Xerxes and Esther are happy newlyweds, just a couple of crazy kids in love. That is, until Mordecai reports to Esther that he's learned of a plot to kill the king. Yes, there's deceit in the walls of the palace. Esther, like the good wife she is, warns her hubby that someone's put a hit on him. The evil plot is foiled and dutifully recorded in the king's biography under the heading, Mordecai Saved the King. Now this is Haman. <laughs> Haman and Xerxes go way back. They went to school together, had sleepovers, played on the same soccer club. They're BFFs. And so Xerxes makes him number two in command, kind of like the vice president of Persia. Everybody loves Haman. Everybody, that is, except Mordecai, who refuses to kiss Haman's VP ring. Now, this doesn't go over too well with Haman. In fact, it makes him so angry that he decides Mordecai must die. And not just Mordecai, but every Jew living in Persia. You could say that Haman has kind of an anger issue. Now, I know what you're thinking here. Just kiss the ring, Mordecai. The guy's not playing with a full deck. But no, Mordecai has a different plan. Get Esther to tell Xerxes that his best friend is trying to kill all of her relatives. This presents two problems. Number one... Esther can't just waltz in and see her husband Xerxes without an appointment. Ah, oh, the good old days. It was a joke. I'm just joking. Whew. Anyway, if she makes the pop-in without an invite, she risks getting more than just banished like poor Vashti did. She risks getting killed. And then their number two problem is the issue of Esther's little secret. Xerxes has no idea she's not Persian, and suddenly she's supposed to say, Surprise, honey, I'm not from around here. Oh, and your best buddy is a homicidal maniac. That's Mordecai's plan. 
Well, after a big guilt trip from Mordecai, Esther grudgingly goes along with his plan and decides that a nice dinner party would be the perfect time to break the news to Xerxes. So she invites both he and Haman to a little get-together. Now, Haman thinks he's hit the big time, getting a personal evite from the queen herself, and so he goes home to brag a little bit. But who do you think he happens to pass at the gate on his way? Mordecai. And guess what Mordecai refuses to do again? Yep, he won't kiss the old VP ring. Haman loses it and immediately goes to work building a 75-foot-tall pole to impale Mordecai on. Yeah, 75 feet. And yeah, impale. Like I said, he has an anger issue. That night, Xerxes is so excited about the banquet with Esther that he has trouble sleeping. So with no internet, no TV, he decides to read a history book, which is the antidote for insomniacs everywhere. Specifically, he reads his biography. As he's flipping through the pages, marveling at all of his great accomplishments, he stumbles across the story of Mordecai and how he warned Xerxes of the plot to kill him. Realizing that he never properly thanked Mordecai, he does what every great leader would do and delegates the duty to his number two man. You see where I'm going with this, right? Xerxes tells Haman to throw out some props to Mordecai, as in give him the royal robe, put him on the king's horse, and walk through the city saying... Haman throws up in his mouth a little bit, but he does as he's ordered, thinking things will certainly be better once he's sitting down for dinner with Esther and Xerxes. Boy, was he wrong. That night, as the banquet is kicking off, Esther decides to just go for it, just tell the king everything, that someone is plotting to kill all the Jews, that she is, in fact, Jewish, and that his best buddy Haman is the madman behind it all. Xerxes is so upset, he has to take a walk to cool down. Haman knows this is not good, so he throws himself to the ground, pleading for Esther to tell the king she was just joking. Xerxes walks back in and sees Haman grabbing his queen and thinks he's trying to give her a kiss. Haman tries to explain, but the king orders him executed. And can you guess where and how? Yep, Haman gets impaled on his own 75-foot pole. And that, my friends, is what you call irony. The Jewish race is delivered, Xerxes and Esther live a long and happy life together, and a great holiday called Purim is established, which roughly translates to In your the end. <laughs> oh, well done. They're working their way off of probation, don't you think? <laughs> Great job, guys. Give them a hand. And I am. Listen, he's not going to like it, but I got to give props to John Burns. He wrote that. John can write uh, drama a little bit, can he? Uh, Give John a hand. Thanks, John, for sharing your talent. (laughs) Well, that either helped you um, get a better grasp of Esther or pushed you into a place where you'll never understand what's going on in the story. No. it was an excellent take, I think, uh, in many ways. Um, with that story in mind, um, I want to focus this morning on the unlikely people that uh, God worked through in the story of Esther. And you might think, well, unlikely people that God might work through, uh, you might think I'm talking about King Xerxes or even Queen Vashti or, well, maybe Haman. And true, those are, would be unlikely people for God to work through, and 
You can make the case that God is indeed working uh, through them uh, in a way. Or maybe you'll think if you've read the story, they didn't show up, um, thankfully, in the skit this morning, but maybe you might think all those eunuchs um, running around in the story of Esther if you've read it. And um, those are the guys uh, with the really high voices. That's a joke, but you have to know what a eunuch is. And I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to find that on your own. And uh, even though the eunuchs have really cool names, they're all named in the book of Esther. Uh, I've yet to find a study or a commentary that uh, explains why are all these eunuchs given first names. If any of you know or have come across that, I would love to know because there's a reason behind it. It's odd uh, how many of them are named. But even though they have really cool names like Big Thana, one eunuch is named Big Thana. Isn't that maybe my favorite name in all the Bible, Big Thana? Is that a cool name? Big Thana. Peter, if you get married someday with my grandson, I want to name him Big Thana. <laughs> Play football, maybe. A lineman, right? But no, I don't want to talk about the eunuchs. The, the two unlikely people in the story of Esther that I'd like to talk about this morning are none other than the heroes, Esther and Mordecai. In many respects, unlikely people for God to work through. And someone might say, well, wait a minute. What do you mean unlikely? You know, uh, they're the heroes. They save the day. Esther risks her life to save her people. Mordecai uh, keeps an eye on her every day to make sure things are going all right with his young cousin. They do all the right things, don't they? And and so Esther and Mordecai, they don't seem like unlikely people, you know, together with the other biblical heroes, or they're like the likely people that God would work through to save the day. So what do you mean, unlikely people? Well, let's take a closer look at each of them. Uh, Esther first. To begin with, Esther enters that Miss Persia beauty pageant, doesn't she? Knowing, uh, we can presume, that the winner marries the king, a Gentile king. Well, that's not allowed according to God's law. And some people may say, well, Esther had no choice. She's being manipulated by powerful patriarchal men. Well, maybe. But we don't know for sure. The story isn't clear at all on that point. It was interesting to me that at the point that um, Esther enters the beauty pageant, um, one person's take and reading it through John, he had Mordecai kind of shove her in line. Did you see it? But we don't know exactly. It just says that she was brought, that she was taken. And we don't know who did the bringing or the taking, but... Either way, she had the opportunity, didn't she? Didn't she have the opportunity to stand as you might think other biblical heroes like Joseph and Daniel, for example, may stand? She had the opportunity right then and there to stand and say, I won't do it. Didn't she? Even if it risked her life, I am not going to disobey God's law and marry that Gentile king. But she doesn't resist, as far as we know, to marrying a Gentile king. She says yes 
to disobeying God's law. And it gets even worse. Part of the beauty contest for Esther is to take her turn having a sleepover in the king's chambers. The text is silent. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened that night, but the the implication seems pretty clear that they didn't simply play Yahtzee or ping pong all night long. Well, surely this Jewish girl will now draw the line as she stands in the long line of biblical heroes. She would now draw the line at obeying God when it comes to ping pong. (laughs) Surely now she'd say, no, you're a Gentile, O king. No, we're not even married. No, I won't. Kill me if you like. Torture me if you like. But I will obey. But there's no hint in the story of Esther that she resisted at all. She had a year of beauty treatments in which to try and plan her escape. She hung in knowing her turn would come and won his favor that night. It's further implied that Esther disobeys God's kosher law when she eats what the Persians eat. You know, does any of this sound at all like Daniel, for example, who steadfastly continues to pray in obedience to God's law and in defiance of Babylonian law forbidding him to pray? It's markedly different, isn't it? And while Esther, to her great credit, finally risks her life to save her people, do you catch in the story how it's written, it's not until after her uncle tells her that if she doesn't, she's going to be killed herself. It's only then Esther says, oh, okay, I'll do it if I perish. I perish. And then after Esther wins the day, exposes Haman, gets the king to issue a decree protecting and empowering the Jews to protect themselves, after one day of fighting where the Jews kill 500 Persians plus Haman's 10 sons, after that, Esther goes to the king and asks for a second day of fighting. And then asks that the dead bodies, presumably, of Haman's ten sons be stuck up on those poles in public. And as a further result of the second day of fighting that the king allows at Esther's request, three more Persians die in the citadel of Susa. And all told, the Jews, get this, wipe out 75,000 Persians. Maybe a thousand Persians for each foot of Haman's pole. And if that doesn't trouble you when reading that, does it make it, well, doesn't that, is that extra bloodshed, Esther and Jews of Persia, really necessary? You, you won. The threat's been taken away. And, And the story is interestingly ambiguous as to whether those Jews are even protecting themselves against anyone attacking them. 
It's ambiguous as to whether they're even abusing the edict. And yeah, let's get them now that the tables are turned. Are there some sketchy things, at least about Esther, that might make you think she's an unlikely person for God to work through? All the commentaries on Esther compare the Esther story to the stories of Joseph and Daniel. And it's easy to see why. Both Joseph and Daniel, if you remember their stories, like Esther, they find themselves in exile in a foreign land. Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon. Both end up in great positions of authority and power and influence, like Esther. Both end up saving their people, like Esther. But there's an unmistakable difference in how those stories, at least, are told in the Bible between Esther and heroes like Joseph or Daniel. Joseph and Daniel are painstakingly obedient to God's law. It's why they get in trouble. And so when we see that faithfulness and obedience as we read the stories, we begin to expect, well, God's going to come through for them. They're being righteous. But Esther, she doesn't resist marrying a Gentile king, spending the night with them unmarried etc. And what about Mordecai? There's some sketchy things about Mordecai that make him seem like an unlikely person for God to work through. Does Mordecai try and hide his cousin from the beauty contest? Does he encourage her to do it? Does he the one that takes her to the king's palace? Again, the story doesn't say. But the story doesn't also show what I might expect from any father or uncle or man here today, uh, Mordecai urging the young girl, you know, stand strong in obedience to God. Resist the contest. Uh, Don't play ping pong. (laughs) Mordecai doesn't do what I have little doubt, uh, I would hope every man here might do today. Um, Make an attempt, Mordecai, uh, giving your own life to try to protect your young girl from all of this. How about suggesting, at least in the year of beauty treatments, or at some point when the word goes out and we're coming for beauty contestants, how about suggesting this, Mordecai? Hey, Esther, tonight would be a really great time for us to go join those Jews who went back to Jerusalem. Pack your bag. Let's go. But he doesn't do it. And remember, at this point in the story, with the beauty contest and all that, the Jews aren't even under a threat yet. And speaking of the Jews being threatened, did you catch from your reading of the book of Esther, and the skit caught it really well, did you catch the cause of this entire mess? The cause that brings the entire Jewish race to the brink of annihilation. And no, it's not Haman. Something pushed his domino over first. What was it? I hear the name Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to give the guy his proper respect. There's no decree or request that he worship him. 
Some may read that into the request that he kneel down, but studies show that kneeling when uh, an emperor comes in, similar to our practice of standing if the United States president came in, it's not worshiping him, it's how we show respect. And Mordecai refuses to do that. And because of his, what is it, pride? Because of his inability to humble himself, the entire Jewish race is brought to the brink of annihilation. An unlikely person for God to work through, do you think? Mordecai urges Esther to keep her Jewish identity a secret. We're not sure why. It's mentioned twice, maybe to build suspense. Maybe his motivation is now, finally, I need to protect her. But can you imagine Daniel covering up the fact that he's one of God's chosen people in order to protect himself? And then later, Mordecai, Mr. Man, his plan, hey, Esther, you be the one to put your life on the line to save the day. Well, that's not a very manly thing to suggest, is it, gentlemen? Send the girl in there. Some commentaries even suggest uh, the way the Hebrew is written that Mordecai, in pressuring Esther, it's even a veiled threat that he's going to be the one that reveals her to the king that she's Jewish if she doesn't get her butt in there. And that makes sense because they don't know yet who's going to tell the king. Is Mordecai implying that? And even if that's too much of a stretch for you to imagine that motive in Mordecai's heart, I still don't, I still don't like the idea of his plan being send in the girl to risk her life. How about this plan, Mordecai? How about you go and throw a banquet in Haman's honor? And spend the whole time kneeling and showing him respect. Try to make amends. No, I can't do that. Esther, you go in there. Yeah, I know he might kill you, but for such a time as this. Hey, Mordecai, for such a time as this, humble yourself before Haman, maybe, hmm, Mr. Man? Neither Esther or Mordecai ever speak of God as the story is told. Neither of them even pray once. Neither seem particularly interested in making sure they obey God's word. I don't know, are they unlikely people for God to work through? Now, I'm not trying to run down Esther and Mordecai, although maybe it feels like it. They are two of my all-time favorite biblical heroes. But I want us to see what I believe the author of Esther wants us to see and how the story is written. While heroes, Esther and Mordecai, well, they have serious issues, don't they? Unlike most of the biblical hero stories, they have real serious issues with even trying to obey God's law. And that makes them different, maybe less likely at least, it seems to me, for God to work through to save the day. But God works through them anyway. Why? 
Last week I suggested to you that the Jewish people in exile in Persia in the wake of Jerusalem and especially the temple being destroyed, they all began to wonder, where do we stand now with God? And the author of Esther is brilliant in how the story is written and told. He tells us a story in a way that leaves the suspense of that question and the reader for the first time hanging on that question. Where do God's people stand with him now in disobedience? And that's why, in my opinion, the author gives us all sorts of sketchy conduct going on um, even in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. That's why the author, in my opinion, deliberately keeps God's name out because he's holding that suspense. Where do the Jews now stand with God now that they're being disciplined for disobedience? What's going to happen now when God's people are threatened? Very little in the story, if anything, foreshadows that God is going to come through like we expect to happen when we read of the stories of Joseph or Daniel because those heroes are more exemplary. I mean, if we don't know the ending of Esther, it seems to me we're more inclined to think as we read along, whoo, this is not going to end very well. And the real power, the real punch, it seems to me, of Esther is that despite all the gloomy foreshadowing that it won't turn out well, despite the flaws in these struggling with obedience people, God comes through. (laughs) That's like, surprise! Complete 180s. When God's people who are wondering, is he still standing with us? expecting the opposite maybe to happen, fearful that it's all over. And the stirring answer of Esther to God's people is when his people feel, oh, where do we stand with God now that uh, we've blown it? And the answer, the punchline of Esther to me is, let me tell you where you stand with God now. God is still standing with you. Amen? To borrow a New Testament phrase, his grace is enough. More than enough, even though we really don't deserve it, which is the essence of grace. And what's more for us today, the reason I'm risking tarnishing the picture of Esther and Mordecai as uh, heroic, it's not because I don't think they are heroic. I said I think they are. But the reason I get so excited about the shortcomings of Esther and Mordecai, because if God can work through those unlikely people who struggle with obedience, then, oh my goodness, there is hope that God could work through even me. Woo! That's a theological expression. Woo! <laughs> In my own journey, people sometimes ask, um, um, why is it that you came to ministry work so late in life? And um, in reflecting on that, Um, I'll tell you one reason that was strong. I mean, it crossed my mind when I was a teen. It crossed my mind in my 20s. And one reason I thought was, I'm not good enough. I read of the righteousness of Abraham. I read the story of Joseph. I read the story of Daniel, and I think, I don't dare to be a Daniel. 
I must have, I, I, I need to continue to strive to get there before I would ever consider living out louder for God or taking something uh, as a pastor role. I still have to pinch myself sometimes that I'm actually standing here with all these people looking at me. The famous Laurel and Hardy line comes in, right? You know, now look at what you've gotten yourself into or what have you gotten yourself into? And it wasn't until I realized the same thing I think the story of Esther is being told to help us to realize that God's grace is enough for whatever he calls you to do, for whatever he gifts you to do, even though, and especially though, we're not perfect. Woohoo! There that is again. <laughs> so if you ever feel like you're not good enough, if you ever feel like you're an unlikely person for God to work through, take heart, or take heart because you are an unlikely person for God to work through. <laughs> but his grace is enough, and in Christ Jesus, he does anyway. Now, it doesn't mean that, oh, so obedience doesn't matter, and I can just sin all I want, and God will use me in powerful ways. The Apostle Paul had that in mind when he cautioned people in the early church who were thinking that way. Hey, grace is not a license, in Paul's words, to sin all the more. But the biblical lesson from Esther to Paul, from Genesis to Revelation, is this. Because of grace, if we just repent, if we just turn, away from gazing at our own navel and our own way of life, if we just turn and look at that everlasting God that we sung about this morning and make an inclination, make an attempt, take a step, boom, another theological word, God will come and save the day. He'll step right with you. And he'll be right there with you saying things like, see, that wasn't so bad, was it? Here we are. I know it's kind of scary. I know you're still struggling with that. How about we take another step? Boom! Don't let the evil one trick you into thinking that you're not worthy enough for God to do amazing things through. Because that is the gospel message, really. In Christ, you are every bit as worthy as he is because of what he did and what he gave to us. Amen? So maybe it's true in our lives, too, just like in Esther, that God works in unlikely places through unlikely people in unlikely ways through seemingly insignificant events. And I love the book of Esther. And I am encouraged that they're not perfect. And yet, in the end, God still saves the day. And he will for you too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Thank you so much for this marvelous story, a story of two unlikely people, uh, an uncle and his orphaned cousin. Thanks for inspiring the writer to tell us the story so that through it we too can be encouraged that, hey, if God worked through Esther and Mordecai in such spectacular ways, he can, in Christ Jesus, work through me in that way too. Oh God, would you please work through each one of us in that way. Work through West Bowles Community Church as a community in that way. Use us, Father, in the lives of others to save their day in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen or woohoo, right? <laughs> Would you stand, please, for the benediction this morning? It comes again from the Apostle Paul. If you're new or visiting, uh, I forget to repeat myself. Uh, sometimes visitors say, you know, why do you come to the middle? You know, are you coming to get me? No, I'm not coming to get me. I'd like at least at one time uh, in the service for us to face each other. If I could rebuild the auditorium, I would put uh, God's Word uh, in the middle and have the people uh, look in and to see each other. See, look at each other now. You see more than the backs of their heads, right? So I like to at least give God's blessing in, in, in this way. My apologies to the balcony folks who have a hard time seeing when I do it. But listen to Paul's words. I don't know if he's thinking of the story of Esther or not. He may be. We'll ask him one day. But here's what Paul says. And we know that in all things, God works. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. 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 Read the book of Esther again this week, won't you please? See you next week. God bless you all.